Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. We've been hearing contradictory evaluations of the state of food security in this country for years now. Although we produce more food than we consume, the agricultural practices of factory farming and monoculture are destroying the soil and water systems that produce all that food. Tom Philpott's new book, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It, looks at the history of American agriculture, focusing on two of our most productive regions, California's Central Valley and Iowa's Corn Belt. He examines the forces that are threatening farms and offers solutions to reverse those trends. Mr. Philpott is the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones magazine. His book is published by Bloomsbury, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show now. Hello. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, my pleasure. In addition to being a journalist, didn't you also work as, as a farmer from 2004 to 2012? Where and, and what kind of food were you growing? Yeah, that's right. Um, in 2004, I moved from New York City to a very small farm in uh, Western North Carolina. And at that farm, we grew a variety of vegetables. We were sort of a diversified vegetable farm. Um, we occasionally had a hog or two that we would, um, would market, but um, our main focus was fruits and vegetables. Did you do it to learn about farming so you could write about it, or did you just, were you at that time thinking of spending your life as a farmer in North Carolina? I kind of I was. Um, I had been living in, um, in New York City, like I said, and getting uh, deeper and deeper into the topic of food. I was actually a financial writer at that time, um, but I was involved in the community gardening uh, movement in, um, in Brooklyn at the time. I gardened at Hollenbeck, Heart, um, Hollenbeck Garden in Carroll, in, um, I'm sorry, um, near Prospect Heights. And mm-hmm. I was just sort of getting more and more interested in food. And my, my girlfriend, Alice Brooke Wilson, um, her, you know, her, her family farm, um, it needed a transition, a generational transition. And so uh, like I said, it was a very small farm. And so with some friends from Brooklyn, uh, we moved down there and started farming and sort of experimenting with new ways of making money um, and also doing a lot of sort of uh, community organizing around food in the area. And the initial intention was just to make a go of it and, um, and see what happened. So what did you learn from that experience that helps you understand what's going on currently in this country system of agriculture. Is North Carolina all that different from some of the other places uh, that uh, where farming is uh, is being done? Upstate New York, for example. Um, it's, you know, it's got some similarities. The, one of the things about our area, which is outside of Boone, was that it was a very sort of vacation-oriented area, so very seasonal. There was a big summer season, you know, because it's cool up in the mountains in the summer, and there was a little bit of a winter um, skiing season. Um, and so, you know, we, de- so we quickly realized we were in an area that had two food systems, in a sense. It had a food system that was catering to sort of, um, you know, fairly wealthy out-of-towners coming in for, you know, summer trips, summer vacations. And then this sort of, um, you know, kind of classically Appalachian economy, um, with lots and lots of uh, low-wage jobs, 
And, you know, basically that food system was supplied mostly by Walmart, maybe a couple of other grocery stores in town too, but Walmart was a big one. And, you know, most of the farms, because of the economics, most of the farms in the area were catering to sort of country clubs and fancy restaurants. And, uh, and so that was our situation there. And I think you do get some of that in, in New York, in the New York area. But, um, you know, the other thing about it is that it's really, really mountainous. And so there isn't a whole lot of bottom land. And what that means is that farms tend to be really small. And you get really, um, you know, fairly small scale agriculture there is the norm. So the smaller farms, of course, uh, focus on selling locally and in farmers markets and the like. Um, and then the big farms, uh, they're the ones that sell to distributors. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Uh, you begin your book in California's Central Valley. How different is farming there from what you experienced in North Carolina? I, I don't think it could be very much different. I mean, I mean, what I mean is that it's, it's so different that it's hard to imagine it being more different because... It's, you know, in, in place of, you know, small mountain patches um, in valleys and, and, and in between mountains, it's a vast ex expanse, basically, you know, stretching from Southern California all, all the way up to near the Oregon border, um, just wow. a really, really huge area. Um, it's incredibly hot. Um, it's, you know, basically got a Mediterranean climate, whereas, you know, in our place in North Carolina, very much of a four seasons uh, kind of place with a pretty cold winter. Um, you know, winters there in the Central Valley are very mild, and you get this blazing hot summer. Um, and, you know, there's actually a lot. It offers a lot of advantages. Um, the weather is fairly predictable. You know that it's going to be hot in the summer. There's going to be some storms in the winter, um, mostly uh, snowstorms that bypass the Central Valley and go to the Sierra Nevada. Um, and the fact that it's so dry in the summer, there's essentially no rain in the summer means that you can control a lot of things you know basically irrigation is, a, is essentially at the push of a button um there you know not as nearly as much disease pressure stuff like mold that we have to deal with in a place like in a mountainous region like north carolina um and you know they they have a lot of advantages there including and i think this is um an advantage that we need to think hard about um, a fairly large pool of essentially disenfranchised labor. And that, you know, I'm referring to the undocumented labor force that mostly comes to Mexico and Central America um, is another huge advantage of that area. But uh, the Trump administration's immigration policies must have had an impact on the labor force. You uh, write about a farmer named Joe Del Bosque, I guess. What is that? Joe from the forest. Uh, and he's, right. uh, he's a Republican. Uh, uh, and so how does he, how does he explain what's going on in Washington? Uh, does he, does he think that the immigration policies are good? Uh, obviously it's going to affect him, uh, and how much he winds up paying for his, his workers. Yeah. He's an interesting character because his parents were immigrants from Mexico um, who worked mm. as farm laborers, and he grew up being a farm worker. Um, and then he sort of, you know, scrapped together in the 80s during a farm crisis, he, scra he scrapped together enough money to rent some land first. And, you know, he rode the wave of, um, you know, organic melons and also non-organic almonds. And he was, you know, basically able to buy some land, um, a pretty good amount of land. 
And um, he's got a really complex view. I mean, he understands what these workers are going through. He sympathizes with them. But at the same time, he is very concerned about, you know, he, he is a Republican. He does not like Trump. He does not like the sort of vitriolic anti-immigrant rhetoric that comes from Trump. He finds it insulting and demeaning. Um, but he also has this sort of faith that, you know, that problem will be sorted out somehow. And that, you know, Trump's, you know, when, when I talked to him, the, the trade wars were just beginning with China. And China is a very important market for California almonds. And he, you know, he was confident that down the road, Trump would get a good trade deal. So, it, you know, it's pretty, con- he, pretty contradictory stuff uh, from, from farmers in the, in the region in general. But they, they definitely want a looser immigration regime. What they really want, and I'm not speaking for Joe here, uh, Joe's a little different, but most of the farmers, what they really want is a guest worker program that gives them unlimited amounts of labor and lots of control over that labor but without a path to citizenship. That's sort of the gold standard, I would say, for <laughs> farms in the, in the area. And, and perhaps uh, no more increases in, in the minimum wage. Uh, so are there right, any Democrats yeah. uh, any Democrats running farms there, or is it pretty much all the, the small business person mentality? Sure, there are Democrats, um, you know, mixed in, but most of the big landowners with big holdings of stuff like almonds, they, they tend to be quite conservative and Republican. And, it's, you know, it's a traditional Republicanism of, you know, free trade and an immigration regime that favors business. It doesn't necessarily favor immigrants, but it, you know, keeps the steady flow of labor for businesses. And so on the one sense, you know, on one hand, they, they like some of what Trump is doing. They like some of the rhetoric. Uh, about sort of opening the China market more. Uh, on the other hand, the immigration stuff makes them uneasy. So Joe Del Bosque uh, grows melons and almonds, uh, and uh, water becomes an issue for him. Uh, but what about other crops grown in the central area? And what percentage of the fruits and vegetables in our supermarkets come from there? A fairly huge proportion. If you take the whole of California, it's more than half the fruits and vegetables come from California. And the, the, the large bulk of that is coming from the, the Central Valley. So it's an extremely important region for, you know, basically, no matter where you are in the country, um, and really pretty much no matter what season it is of the year, most of the fruits and vegetables in your supermarket are going to be from California. There will be lots of exports mixed in. You know, in more recent years, there's been a push for these big supermarket chains to get some local produce. But um, all that said, California is the sort of major supplier of that stuff. Now, you take us through the long, complicated history of water scarcity in California. So where does most of the water needed for farming in the Central Valley come from uh, when they don't get much rainfall? Well, so um, the thing about the Central Valley that makes it have an amazing water resource is that it's got this huge Sierra Nevada mountain range um, just to its east, you know, all along the valley is this huge mountain range. And it basically traps all of this weather coming into the South Pacific and gets these huge snowstorms in the winter. And so what happens is the spring comes and the snow melts and you get this 
avalanche, this incredible amount of water heading down the mountain. And, you know, as I show in the book, uh, the story of California farming over the past century or so has been, you know, basically government programs to put in infrastructure to capture that water and divert it to farming. Uh, basically, so you know, dams, one to mighty canals, river. aqueducts to channel the snow. Exactly. Uh, yeah. And that's and been so created that is, over the years. Yeah, that's been that was created over the course of the 20th century. There's a big federal project uh, with, you know, built with federal money. And then there's a big state project built with state money. And together they form one, really one of the greatest irrigation projects in the world. And it's um, it's a great resource for California farming. But there's one major catch. And that catch is that farming has gotten so big and so productive that the farmers there have basically outstripped that resource. They have way more water demands than that resource can supply. Uh, meanwhile, climate change has decreased the snowmelt, um, you know, documented uh, over the past 30 years. There's just less average snow falling. And so you've got a falling resource and rising demand. And so what the answer has been is to dig wells in tap water from deep underground which is, you know, essentially this fossil resource. And so what, what they're doing in California to make this incredible bounty in our supermarkets is drawing down water at an alarming rate. Um, they're, they're sucking it down so fast that the ground is literally sinking, especially in the southern half of the Central Valley. I remember uh, learning about the competition for water between agricultural interests and residential users from the movie Chinatown. Was that an accurate yes. depiction? Is there uh, a, a strong competition between the two? And if there is, I would assume that uh, that uh, people with uh, who have uh, more political clout would be more likely to get the water. Yeah, that is going to be a rising question in the future. Chinatown was about the founding of L.A. Um, and you know, one thing that we're going to be seeing is that these growing, but still fast growing metropolises of California are going to be um, demanding more water. And we're seeing that in a different part of California, most um, than the Central Valley, most, you know, um, sort of uh, urgently right now. And that would be in the Imperial Valley in the far south of California, basically at the southeast corner between, you know, you know, sort of wedged between Mexico and Arizona, there's this desert land. I mean, this, this place gets like three inches of water a year. Um, but it's the most productive winter vegetable growing region in America. Um, and it gets 100% of its water from the Colorado River, uh, which originates up in the Rocky Mountains. And also many cities along its pathway all the way down into Mexico, you know, metropolis is like Phoenix and Denver, I mean, just going all the way down, San Diego, LA, rely on water from this area and farmers get the great bulk of it right now. And we're going to see rising competition for that. They've already had to give some of it up to San Diego. I expect more to come. Uh, and then meanwhile, you have the same phenomenon where the, the uh, Rocky Mountain snowpack is shrinking because of climate change. Uh, the area is in a 20 year drought that I think we're starting to think about as a new normal, not necessarily a drought, where just less snow drops. And so you are going to see that um, 
coming to the fore. And also in the Central Valley, lots of, you know, lots of California relies on the Sierra Nevada for its drinking water. And, you know, there's already massive battles about, about it, and those are going to intensify going forward. I'm speaking with Tom Philpott, who's written a book called Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, also WBAI.org. You write about uh, Stuart and Linda Resnick, who own the wonderful company, Makers of Palm Wonderful. How have they uh, been affected by the allocation of water in California? Well, they have been very canny um, and lucky because you know, I think they understood from, a, um, from pretty early on, uh, starting in the 80s, that the main thing that they're, that when they're buying land in the Central Valley, in San Joaquin Valley, which is the southern part of it, what they're really buying is water rights. Um, and so they have made it their business because they're, you know, they're huge um, pistachio growers and producers. Everyone who goes to a grocery store has been to a grocery store in the past five years to seeing the sort of wonderful pistachio um, displays in the produce section. They're huge almond producers. Of course, pomegranate, um, number one pomegranate producer. And, um, Seeing the writing on the wall in the 90s for the way water was going, they were able to commandeer something called the Kern Water Bank. And the Kern Water Bank is, was a very smart idea. The idea was to capture excess snowmelt in really wet years, uh, capture it and save it, and then it was a public bank. It was a pub literally a water bank. Uh, and then distribute it to cities in drought years when there's less snowpack. And to sort of level out the sort of um, gyrations of California water. And in a mysterious deal in the mid-90s, they were able to buy control of it. And so they're able to control this bank and divert water to their needs. And so when there's a drought, as there, you know, there's a brutal drought from 2011 to 2016, as a lot of people will remember. They were able to, com you know, basically commandeer water from the water bank. And they can decide, hey, is this more valuable to divert to our almonds or to sell to someone else? Uh, so, so they're very powerful brokers in the area. And they've got, you know, huge portions of three major markets, almonds, pistachios, and pomegranates. Are lobbyists and investors able to sway the politicians who make the decisions about these sorts of things? Oh, sure. The, the, the residents have, you know, definitely have well-connected lobbyists in Washington that are, you know, actually friendlier with Democratic regimes than they are with Republican regimes, but definitely they play both sides of the fence. Um, there is a woman whose name I don't have right in front of me, but she went from a high position in the Obama USDA straight to become the chief lobbyist for the wonderful company in Washington. Uh, and then she later went on to become a lobbyist at a major lobbying firm, lobbying on behalf of agribusiness clients. And she's now invo involved in the Joe Biden campaign. And this is, you know, I just tell the story because it's very, very typical that they, you know, that particular company has, you know, lots and lots of, they've cultivated friends in high places. And the California sort of agriculture industry has done a great job of that. They've got very sympathetic people in the House of Representatives, um, 
California senators have traditionally been very uh, have advocated for them. Uh, so the, 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 the answer to your question is a very strong yes. They, they have cultivated a lot of power, both in Washington and Sacramento. And you also write that the farmland itself is being increasingly bought up by financial institutions as investment property. Is this something recent? And, and what does it matter if a farm is owned by a, a farmer or by a bank or hedge fund that then puts a farmer on it to, to run the farm? It's been going on in a pretty strong way for more than more than 10 years. And I mean, I think the problem with it is that um, a hedge fund or an insurance company um, or just these investment funds that have come along to invest in farmland, they are going to take a cold-blooded look at that piece of land and say, what is the highest, you know, what use can I make of it that's going to bring the highest value over some time frame for my shareholders? Um, and, the que- you know, that question could lead them into making some very questionable decisions. And I would actually say that the decision in 2016, you know, when the drought was just, you know, basically even during the drought, and I witnessed it myself, there was this massive expansion of things like pistachios and almonds, and, um, and it continues to this day. Um, and the problem with it is that when you invest millions of dollars, it takes millions of dollars to, to put in these crops, uh, and you're looking at about a 15 or 20 year horizon, you're setting for the next two decades this, um, this need. If you're going to you know, make money in your investment, you've got to get water every year, you know, good year or bad year in the Sierra Nevada. You've got to get water. And if the, the snow melt uh, fails that year, if you know, there's not a big snowpack, then you're going to drill wells and suck that water from underground. And that's the problem with it is that they are looking for a return on an asset Whereas someone who's thinking about stewarding the land and passing it on to a future generation is going to be thinking about more long-term goals than that, and maybe moving to crops that are less water-intensive, that you know you can follow in in dry in a, you know dry years, um, and so you know, not just with profit as the only motive. And these companies, I mean, they're they're bound by law to increase shareholder value in what they do. And I think that can be very dangerous with farmland. You also write that uh, uh, municipal water systems are experiencing high levels of arsenic. What's causing that? Yeah. So in places in the central Valley that rely on well water, which is a lot of them because this infrastructure is really efficient at getting water to farms less so for let's say townships that where farm workers live many of these townships um, rely on well water and as the aquifer drops as the aquifer gets lower and lower as giant you know almond farms suck water out of it to uh you know keep their almond crop going the the aquifer falls and gets lower and lower and more and more concentrated with all kinds of actually naturally uh, recurring molecules. Um, But ones that can be dangerous to us, like arsenic, there is Hmm. a lot of arsenic lower in the water table. And, you know, I witnessed, you know, places in the central Valley that are talked about in my book where you've got farm workers making, you know, maybe $18,000 a year, essentially living in poverty 
that are for that are paying a water bill, but they're forced to buy water and spend thousands of dollars a year on bottled water. Um, and it's uh, it's crazy. Uh, and there's also nitrate. So the arsenic is a naturally occurring uh, chemical, but there's also nitrate, which is from nitrogen fertilizer, mm-hmm. which is a toxin. Uh, and, you know, water throughout California's agricultural regions, uh, groundwater is polluted with nitrate. And that's a problem that is going, going to be very hard to fix because it lingers for a long time. It takes a long time to seep down from the, um, from the soil as well. Um, and Along- so, you know, go ahead. I was going to just move on a little bit because uh, you, this is not in your book, but it, it, it fits into this conversation. Earlier this month, red onions grown in California were traced as the potential source of a salmonella outbreak that's infected more than 500 people in 34 states in the U.S. and Canada. And they were traced back to Thompson International, a produce supplier in Bakersfield. Uh, but that sort of thing seems to be happening quite regularly. Is that all part of the same yes. system? Well, that is a, a symptom of, there's something I don't get in too much in, in my book, but in that area, there is an incredible concentration of industrial scale dairy farms and also poultry operations and chicken operations. And, um, and so often you'll get, you know, pollution from manure from these facilities seeping into water that ends up being used for irrigation. And that is a massive problem and a, also a problem of concentration when one company can put out some red onions that, you know, as we know, are often used raw um, to 34 states. So you got one company with probably, you know, I'm speculating, but throughout the, the Bakersfield area that, that's in Kern County, there are many giant industrial dairy farms. Now, the other area you profile is Iowa's Corn Belt. Uh, are farmers there dealing with completely different problems, or uh, are they somehow related to what you saw in California? I think they're related by this sort of concentrated market at the top. You know, wonderful company versus the giant seed and chemical companies that kind of run the show in Iowa. And this, this push for profit. Um, on the other hand, they're quite different because whereas California, you know, the Central Valley doesn't get any water at all in the summer and is overstripping its water resources, Iowa in, you know, in many ways, the Corn Belt is a water paradise. You know, plenty of water. Almost all agriculture in the Corn Belt is rain-fed. And, you know, you're, they're producing giant crops with just rain, no, you know, not having to revert to wells and things like that. That's different in the plains. There's ma- just a little bit to the west of the Corn Belt. There's massive problems with very California-like problems with aquifer depletion. But in the Corn Belt, no. What's happening in the Corn Belt is that soil is being lost at an alarming rate. Um, so this is this area that has one of the world's greatest stores of topsoil that, that developed over literally millennia of prairie grasses and bison and people Native, Native people sort of interacting with this ecosystem and, you know, setting fires at certain times, which keeps tree growth down and allows the, the prairie to, you know, main, you know maintain itself. Um, huge amounts of carbon sucked into the soil, incredibly carbon-rich, loamy topsoil that sort of U.S. settlers, you know, grabbed in the 19th century and what we're seeing is, uh, uh, you know, there were erosion problems since U.S. 
the U.S. took it over that were essentially brought into balance in the 60s and 70s that are now back with a vengeance. We're seeing massive rates of, uh, of erosion. And, you know, we're essentially like what's happening with California's aquifers. We're wasting away the sort of fossil resource that really should be a linchpin of our food system forever. We're, you know, in the span of a generation, we're depleting it dramatically. Now, the, the Corn Belt grows two main crops, corn, obviously, also soybeans, used mainly to feed cattle and hogs, and then also as uh, ingredients in soybean oil, high fructose corn syrup, and, and the ethanol that's mixed with gasoline, uh, but n not the corn that we get in the supermarket? No, I mean, there's some sweet corn grown in the Corn Belt, but, you know, just the great bulk of corn is corn that you and I could not eat. Um, it would be, not taste very good and be pretty indigestible. Um, it's basically an industrial seed stock. And like you said, it, it's transformed into animal meat, um, literally liquid fuel, and lots of ingredients that we're learning are not good for us. High, you know, now, like you said, high fructose corn syrup, soybean oil, things like that. In the past, didn't the area also grow wheat, oats, rye, and other grains? How did they wind up being cut out and with and now just corn and soybeans well i think a lot of it was just there was this fever for simplification and efficiency and if you if you grow just two crops um that are you know have you know pretty similar needs then you can use the same machinery the same companies can market them the livestock, you know, the sort of meat industry can tailor their diets and figure out like, sort of the ideal diet based on those two feedstocks, corn and soybeans. And so you get this very, very efficient kind of operation. And, you know, as I, as I um, show in the book, it is incredibly productive. I mean, it's stunningly productive that, you know, basically it's feeding um, a livestock system, a meat system, that's giving us one of the highest rates of meat consumption ever on the planet. Uh, you know, something like, um, you know, um, 220 pounds a year per person is only, you know, a little bit more than half a pound per person per day of meat. Um, it's, do, you know, it's, it's feeding that system. It's literally providing a third, I'm sorry, it's providing 10% of liquid fuel. When you drive around about 10% of your gas is ethanol. Um, it's basically supplying all of the oil, the sort of cooking oil for the industrial food market in the form of soybean oil and corn oil, um, it, all kinds of other ingredients. A huge portion of our sweeteners come from corn. Um, and even after, and then there's also massive exports. You know, we have huge exports of corn and soybeans, especially soybeans. And even after all those uses, these things are way overproduced. And they're, the, the area has really been involved in a, um, a sort of spasm of overproduction that dates back to the 70s. There's been a couple of, of times since the 70s when, it, when, it, you know, when there has been a shortage and prices have risen, but mainly the story has been overproduction. And so it's just kind of a ridiculous system when you think about it. Well, Tom, we have to take a little break and we'll come back to that in just a moment. This is Leonard Lopate at large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, also WBAI.org. I am a Midwest farmer. I make a living off the land. 
I ride a John Deere tractor. I'm a liberated man. The rain it hasn't fallen since the middle of July. And if it don't come soon, my crops will die. The bankman says he likes me, but there's nothing he can do. He tells me that he's coming, but the clouds are coming too. He ain't my friend. I'll ride again. I'm an American Indian. I would like to take a few moments to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to come through for us right now by going to our website, give to WBAI.org. That's given, then the number two, WBAI.org, or by calling 516 620 3602. That's 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. Uh, again, the number 516-620-3602 or our website, give to WBAI.org. And, and one great way to support WBAI throughout the year and also spread out your own financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of this station, what we call a BAI buddy. Joining me now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to tell you about a special offer for anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy during today's show. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Great to be joining you. Yes, I am delighted to let our listeners know that anyone who signs up to become a sustaining member of the, of the station, a BAI buddy, as Leonard was just saying, someone who makes a monthly contribution of $10 or more will be sent a free copy of the book that uh, Leonard has been discussing on today's show, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It by our guest, Tom Philpott. And uh, what an important topic. I was really struck by the fact that obviously you can't talk about food without talking about the water supply and the issues of what and how that ended up with a discussion of Chinatown. And, and uh, it, it's really interesting once you start looking at it. And by the way, all Jesse, we haven't gotten to Monsanto and, and Bayer and, <laughs> and all there sorts are of other so things. So many things that. that and government that policy. It's it's one of those sort of sticky issues where there's all these other things hanging onto it that are attached. Uh, and, and this is really the kind of thing that we like to do is is when you have an hour to go uh, beyond the sort of uh, uh, thesis statement and actually get into some of the, the meat of what this, this book is about and what Tom has done here, uh, I, I think you can see how important – this is and just how disturbing uh, some of this is. This is definitely information that we all need to know. So if you'd like to know it, uh, you got to make that call right now at 516-620-3602 or go to the web at give2wbai.org. Obviously, you don't have to, but we would like you to. And, uh, you you know, Leonard, it it, it really is uh, always, always great to be able to to pass a a book along to people Mm -hmm. like this that is so important. And the the one main point I wanted to make, just because something this came up with a listener the other day, if you sign up to become a BAI buddy, as we've been saying, uh, sustaining member, 
take it out of your credit card, your debit card, cancel anytime. If you do that today, anytime today, and this is, you know, we're on Monday, August 10th, 2020, uh, we will automatically send the book. You don't need to tell the person on the other end of the phone. You don't need to check any extra boxes online. I will personally make sure that this book gets to you. But the becoming a BAI buddy is only one way that you can show your support for the station as Leonard. Whatever level say, yes, we need yeah, it. Whatever level you're able to show your support for the station, uh, the, the station that brings you uh, our show weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m. It all helps, whether you become a BAI buddy or give us some amount that you're comfortable giving. The important thing is to to take that step to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners. So please give us that call, 516-620-3602, or go to our website, give to wbai.org to support independent radio in New York. You are our only source of income, our listeners. We don't take money from anyone else. We don't run ads. Uh, Jesse, you want to add to that? I mean, you, you said it about as, as well as, as anyone could. Uh, only that, obviously, if you're signing up, you're getting a book, uh, and a really important one about this critical topic that Leonard is just about to dive back into. But it's important to know that you're also making a very serious contribution to keep this show on the air coming to you weekdays one to two uh bai whether it's by a B, becoming a bai buddy or whatever contribution you make in the name of the show i mean bai needs it and and we need that show of support so that we know uh that we can keep bringing you these kinds of shows these are obviously very tumultuous times and uh and, and we like nothing more than than to keep bringing you shows you're fascinated by but we can only do that with your help so one last time the number is 516-620-3602 or go to the web at give to wbai.org whatever amount you you can uh contribute at is is so deeply appreciated by all of us at the show and at the station. But if you sign up to become a BAI buddy, a sustaining member for $10 or more a month, uh, you get a free copy of the book that Leonard is discussing today, Perilous Bounty, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. That is good through today. So make that call right now. And I want to let you get back to it, Leonard. But just a big thanks to everyone who's contributed so far. And, and please make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. So let's get back to Tom Philpot, who has been the food and agriculture correspondent for Mother Jones for the last nine years. You write that farming in the Corn Belt is a profitless enterprise requiring federal subsidies to keep it going. So how did that happen? Is that because of our well, uh, I mean, recent tariffs with, with China, or is it something else? It's a very long-term problem. It's really sort of the tragedy of farming. And I, I, I got a taste of this as a farmer myself, and that is that you know, you're, you're, you know, you're basically at the mercy of the earth and the elements, and you, know, you throw these seeds down and you cross your fingers, and then, you know, you hope a crop comes up and you, can, you, you hope you can sell it. Um, and oftentimes the expenses that go into it, the, the market's not going um, to fully compensate you. Um, in our case, it was just, you know, very labor intensive and we basically did the labor ourselves. Um, 
in the Midwest, what happens, so, you know, let me just make a distinction here because we would grow vegetables that we thought were really special, that were different breeds that we thought were special. We were growing them organically. Um, they, they tasted really good. And so we go to the farmer's market and say, hey, you know, buy our vegetables and pay a little extra because these are, are better than, you know, these have something going different than the vegetables at the Walmart. Um, commodity farming in the Midwest is a lot different. Um, what they're doing in the Midwest is they're all growing the same damn thing. It isn't like this farm, this, you know, 10,000 acre farm in Iowa is growing something different and distinctive from a 5,000 acre farm in Minnesota, or for that matter, a 30,000 acre soybean farm in Brazil. They're all growing the same thing and it's all going into the same market. And so there's hyper competition at that level. And, you know, you're basically a price taker. You take what the, the market delivers. Meanwhile, so they're in this really brutally competitive situation Farmers are in the in the Midwest with competitors in Brazil, Argentina, um, down the road from them. Everyone's growing the same thing. Ukraine is breaking ground on a massive amount of corn and probably soybeans um, coming here soon, uh, going into the global market. So it's this hyper competitive situation. Meanwhile, there's this group of companies that have grown up over the past, you know, let's say 100 years, to supply this kind of agriculture. And these companies have slowly dwindled down into a small handful. So there's a small handful of seed and pesticide companies. That's where you're sort of Bears and Syngenta. Bear now owns Monsanto. Monsanto. Dow and DuPont have combined into a company called Corteva. Um, these are giant globe-spanning companies that dominate the market in the seeds and pesticides that these farmers uh, use. Um, another handful of companies that we've been hearing a lot about recently in this pandemic dominate the meat industry. These are your Tysons and your Smithfields and your JBSs, which is a Brazilian company. Um, they control the great bulk of the U.S. meat industry. And so they're able to use their market power to squeeze farmers on those prices. So they, they exist in a not very competitive space because there's just a few of them. And the farmers that, they're, that sort of are under them are in this hyper-competitive space. And so what happens is there's downward pressure on the price that farmers get in the marketplace. Meanwhile, there's upward pressure on what they pay for their seeds and their pesticides and their fertilizers and their tractors. Um, tractors and combines are John also Deere. an incredibly – yeah, John Deere – and a couple of other Pretty. companies, but John Deere being the, the big one, they dominate that market. And so what happens is your costs are always creeping up and the amount that you make, um, you know, in the marketplace is always creeping down. And so, you know, you're, you're lucky if you break even. And, and, um, then and the, so you say, well, go ahead. No, no, finish. I was, I was going to say, say there are two major fertilizer companies, Nutrien and Mosaic, and they control a large part of the market, uh, controlling the prices. You mentioned Monsanto, which has uh, cornered the combined seed and pesticide market. Uh, and uh, that really confused me. How do you wind up uh, combining seeds and pesticides? It's distinct products. They also um, developed uh, the weed killer Roundup, which... Uh, has uh, just recently uh, cost them 
a lot of money because uh, uh, Bayer Monsanto has been fined $10 billion because Roundup has been linked to cancer. But there they are doing that. They're coming up with genetically modified seeds uh, that are resistant to Roundup. Uh, it's one or two companies are uh, controlling an awful lot of this. Yes. Have I and left so anything that's out? Where the profits are going. Um, that's that's basically it. Well, you know, once we talk about tractors, we already talked about tractors, seeds, and pesticides. Yeah, that's pretty much it. It's a really there's a, a few industries that farmers are sort of enmeshed in, and all of them are dominated by you know two or three companies. Now. Uh, Monsanto has also created a computerized system called Climate Field View, which can be synced with John Deere tractors. What does that do? Yeah, and it, I think that's, that's something to be concerned about because, you know, so basically to go back to the seed and pesticide question. So basically Monsanto comes into the genetic modified seed market starting in the 80s, and they figure that they can basically be like a software company that sells traits to other seed companies. Like we don't, you know, we don't have to get into the grubby business of, you know, growing out seeds and selling them to farmers. It's a low margin business. Let's let these other companies do it. And we'll just um, do, the, do these traits, these genetically modified traits that they, they can cross into their seed lines and we'll get a technology fee like um, Microsoft gets whenever you download Word. Wait, wait um, let me stop you for a second. Was, so these genetically modified seeds were developed to be resistant to Roundup? Well, yeah, so that was the catch, right? So Monsanto was a chemical company. It was uh, involved in a lot of really controversial and actually awful chemicals in, you know, the, the 50s, 60s, and 70s. And they came up with this, you know, kind of randomly, kind of by accident, this this substance that could, you know, kill a broad spectrum of weeds. So basically you throw it on anything that's growing and it, you know, it basically makes the plant unable to uh, synthesize protein. And so it, um, so the plant dies. Um, and so, um, so it, it has this sort of, you know, silver bullet herbicide. And um, when it's, you know, got into the GMO business, and innovated was an innovator in that space it naturally wanted to figure out a way to sell more um roundup because you know you couldn't spray roundup once your corn came up you you, you couldn't spray roundup anymore so now farmers had to deal with weeds you know between their rows and other ways and so you know the, the the geniuses behind monsanto said well you know if we could develop a seed line that could resist roundup then we could we could sell lots more Roundup, and we can get this technology fee for the um, for all the seeds. But, you know, farmers would have to pay us for this technology, and it worked. But they couldn't find very many other applications for their. Um, you know, they they couldn't find any. They, there's all this promise of GMOs that would do things like. Um, you know, decrease the amount of nitrogen that plants need, decrease the amount of water plants need. None of those really panned out very well. And so they were really kind of stuck with Roundup Ready. And to really capture the profits that were being generated, they decided that they had to own the seed companies too. Um, and so in the 90s, you get Monsanto barreling into the seed industry 
buying up seed companies left and right. And meanwhile, Roundup Ready crops are exploding because if you're a farmer in the Midwest, you're spending a lot of time, you know, controlling weeds between those rows while your, your crop is coming up. You're, you know, you're cultivating between the row, rows. You're very carefully applying other herbicides so as not to damage your crop. Uh, and this made it extremely easy. So it was a sort of killer app kind of technology that took the whole Corn Belt by storm uh, starting in the 90s. And, um, and so Monsanto, you know, it be became a seed giant. And, you know, people like me think that there is a conflict of interest when mm -hmm. seed companies are, you know, basically in the business also of selling pesticides. And, you know, so a lot, that business has a, developed dramatically. A lot Go of ahead. people are very wary of buying GMO produce. Is it actually safe to eat? Because uh, I know Monsanto has developed a PR campaign to reassure the public. Yeah, so I think the safe to eat thing ends up being a little bit of a red herring that ends up being very useful for the company. Um, and that is because you know, someone like me is looking at this system where they have this interest in using their sort of, you know, monopoly, close to monopoly power in the seed industry to move more pesticides. I think that's a really grotesque conflict of interest. And so I'm criticizing the system. And then there, there are activists out there. And I think, you know, most of these claims have been fairly well discredited. You know, you know it's basically a crop by crop basis. But there's no real hard evidence that eating, you know, GMOs themselves are somehow more dangerous. And so what the company does is, and I kind of document this in my book, they come out with this thing about basically GMOs are safe and therefore all of our critics are anti-science you know, zealots. So someone like me gets portrayed as an anti-science zealot when, hey, I'm not talking about whether your product is safe or not. I'm questioning the system that you've developed. And I think there are parts of the system that are very unsafe. There's this overuse of pesticides that runs off into water that yes, does get on food and we get traces of it in our diet. And there's debates about whether there's enough on our food to cause trouble, but it's on our food and that's pretty disturbing to me. Um, but so I'm a critic of the system and I'm not out there saying that, you know, if you eat some GMO corn, you're gonna kill over. If you use some GMO corn, frankly, you're going to spit it out because that kind of corn doesn't taste very good and we can't digest it anyway. Uh, I mean, now, of course, we do. I mean, that's we, we, we do get it in things like tortillas and things like that. So we are consuming some of it, but, um, but most of it is going into animal feed and things like that. We have very little time left. I did want to address something that you couldn't have covered in your book because it uh, relates to the coronavirus pandemic. In March, Congress authorized a multi-billion dollar bailout for farms that were suffering losses because of the pandemic, but it left the Department of Agriculture to work out how the money would be spent. And when the program was rolled out two months later, Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue said that its $16 billion in direct payments would be a lifeline for farmers for all sizes and all production. Yet it turns out the first nearly 700,000 payments totaling $5.6 billion has been uh, uh, marked by structural challenges because it favored large industrialized farms over smaller diversified ones and provides loopholes for corporate farms. Um, 
the top 1% of recipients got more than 2% of the money totaling 1.2 billion. The, uh, the bottom uh, got, uh, the, the bottom 10% got $300. The top uh, 10% got 60% uh, of the money, which is thousands and thousands of dollars. So um, government policy uh, can really affect farmers as well in ways that we don't normally even think about. Yeah, I mean, I think you've got that, one minute. Uh, I'm sorry, that was a long speech. Okay. I'm sorry. Well, I think it's ba I think it's basically the Trump rural strategy is to parachute cash into farm country that gets swallowed up by these large operations. I think that's that's basically what's going on. But I can tell you that I know lots of farmers on you know supplying local markets, regional markets that have been hit hard by the COVID nineteen crisis, just the disruption in supply chains and disruption of farmers markets that are struggling mightily right now and aren't getting any of that money. I'm sorry we can't get to a bunch of other things like soil erosion and whatever. Uh, there's a lot in your book, but uh, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation for me. Thank you, Tom Philpot, for talking about your new book from uh, Bloomsbury called Perilous Bounty, well, The Looming Collapse of American Farming and How We Can Prevent It. Go ahead. What a great interview. Thank you so much for having me. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to segment producer Barbara Kahn, who prepared today's interview. If you're just discovering this program and, excuse me, <coughs> suddenly I get choked up at the end. <coughs> if you'd like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as podcasts on iTunes or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to follow our show pages on Facebook and Twitter. Also, uh, visit our website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com, where there are links to all of our past shows. Uh, please, uh, as we were talking about earlier, consider becoming a member of BAI. Go to our website, Give2WBAI.org, or call 516-623-602. If you become a BAI buddy, we'll send you a copy of Tom Philpott's book. And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when David Gesner will discuss his latest book, Leave It As It Is, A Journey Through Theodore Roosevelt's American Wilderness. We hope to see you then.